From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, it wouldn't be a week without a weekly update on the funding formula bill, but we're going to get to that later because we've got immunizations, we've got sex education, we've got guns in schools. This feels like the all-caps edition of the Extra Credit podcast. A lot of very emotional issues uh, coming to the fore this week at the State House. Yeah, for sure. Kevin, let's start with immunizations. You got some new data uh, from the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. And immunizations is something that has been in the news, uh, not only some outbreaks uh, regionally, uh, but some bills. Uh, and and it's been a live issue at the legislature. It's absolutely been a live issue at the legislature. A couple of bills having to do with immunizations and opt-out procedures. But let's get to the news. The latest data about uh, immunization rates among our school children, you found some trends and you found some changes from the last time you looked at the data what did you find, and, and help us put it in perspective? There are some trends, and there are some areas of concern for state uh, health officials. So here, here are the basic numbers. About 86.5% of Idaho students are fully immunized. They, they have all of the immunizations that the state uh, recommends. That number is down slightly from where it's been the past couple of years, where you've seen a real change in the numbers is in the number of students who are in school without a full battery of immunizations because their parents have opted out of at least one of these immunizations. That percentage has gone to 7.7% of students are in an opt-out in one manner or another. So what does that mean in terms of the human numbers? Because percentages, even when they increase as, as they're doing here, it, percentages aren't as tangible as real human numbers. So we've got almost 5,600 kids in kindergarten, first grade, or seventh grade are in school on some sort of an opt-out. That is more kindergarten, and first grade, and seventh grade students than you have in the entire Boise School District. That's more kindergarten, first grade, and seventh grade students than you have in every charter school in the entire state. So this is a large cohort of kids that we're talking about here. And the number of students in school on an opt-out, that has increased by almost 25% just in the past two years. And that's a rate of growth that far outstrips what we're seeing in enrollment growth. So you can't explain it away uh, simply from enrollment growth. Right. The, the numbers are inescapable. You have more parents who are, for one reason or another, and generally it's for religious or uh, personal reasons, are choosing to opt their kids out of immunizations in some form. So that's you know contributing in a big way to uh, the state not being at the 90% or higher mark that they would like to see in terms of an immunization rate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting data. You can look at the homepage at idahoednews.org. Were there pockets around the state? Was there anything you noticed... Um, you know, regionally, did anything stand out uh, as we look at different parts of the state or different sizes or types of schools? Did anything uh, jump out at you among the numbers? The numbers do vary widely uh, from community to community and from school to school. And, and when we started to look at the school numbers, for most of the larger districts around the state, the immunization rate is higher than the state average. So when you're talking about Triple West Ada, Nampa, uh, the bigger districts in eastern Idaho, the numbers are, are better than we're seeing at the statewide level. Uh, you have a few schools where the rate is, you know, 
well into the 90%, even uh, 100%. But there we're talking about some really small districts. Yeah. You also, on the other end of the scale, you have some smaller districts where the immunization rates are very low at, at 70% or even lower. So it really varies from community to community. In the big picture of it all, Clark, um, when health and welfare looks at these numbers and they look county by county, it seems like the higher opt-out numbers are uh, from central Idaho on north into the panhandle. Okay. And the lower opt-out numbers are generally in eastern Idaho, that you have, a, you have higher immunization rates by and large in eastern Idaho, lower immunization rates by and large in north Idaho. Uh, we have, if you go to my story at idahoidnews.org, you can download the data. We've got it district by district, so you can see what's going on in your, your part of the state. We also have the county by county numbers if you're interested in those. So there's a lot of data there to digest. And I think that would be a good resource for folks, especially educators or parents or taxpayers who might be concerned about the particular rates within their home county or their home school district. So I think it would be worth downloading that data set. Do you want to get into the policy side of the debate? And first of yeah. all, mm -hmm. talk about Definitely. the opt-outs, what's allowed under state law right now. And then let's talk about one of these bills that's, uh, it may be House Bill 133, but one of these bills that's making its way just past the House early this week. But first of all, let's talk about the policy and what it means to opt out and, and, and how parents do that currently. Well, that's changed too. And I suspect that that's part of the... Um, the mix here in terms of these increased numbers. So as of this year, uh, parents can opt out simply by turning a letter into their neighborhood school saying that they're going to opt out. In the past, parents had to turn in a form, uh, a state form that you can download on the, on the state's website. It's not a very long form. It's only two pages long. So this is not an arduous paperwork right. process. It never has been. But now parents can simply turn in a letter. And why is that a concern to health and welfare? Um, well, part of the concern is that if it's so easy for parents to opt out, you could have parents who, you know, you're in the rush to get your kid registered for kindergarten. You've never done this before, and you forget that you have to get this, you know, battery of immunizations. And you really do intend to get your kid immunized. At that point, you might just turn in a letter that says, I'm opting out, when that's really not what you're planning to do, that you're just trying to get your kid registered for school. And then you forget. I mean, life happens, and, you know, you know, especially when you're a, a parent of a young child, you know, life really happens A lot's fast. going on, yeah. So, you know, their concern is that you may have parents who just forget about immunizations because, you know, they've, you know, just filled out a, a letter to opt out. So that's changed. That's a new policy that's in effect this school year. So I think it's probably had some effect on the numbers that we're seeing this school year. The legislature has made that rule permanent. So that's going to be the procedure going forward. You mentioned House Bill 133. Yep. This passed the House on Monday. You were on the floor when it passed. This bill would require public schools and private schools and private daycares to provide opt-out information to parents at the same time uh, that they provide the immunization information from the state. Uh, this passed the House fairly uh, handily. Uh, there was a, a smattering of opposition from a few Republicans, and most of the Democrats on the floor uh, opposed it. The argument for this bill, uh, Priscilla Giddings, the, the lawmaker from North Central Idaho, is saying that uh, she thinks that parents just don't understand what their rights are and that there's uh, confusion, misunderstanding, and that this makes it more transparent. Well, if you look at the opt-out numbers that the state provided this week, it's pretty clear when you look at, at Giddings' legislative district in particular, yeah. 
four counties in north central Idaho heading up towards the panhandle, all four counties, the opt-out numbers are 14% or higher, much higher even than the statewide. The word is out. So it's kind of hard to look at those numbers and say that parents don't realize that they have the the prerogative to opt out of immunizations. But that was the argument that uh, ruled the day on the House floor. This bill now goes to the Senate. We don't know what will happen there. We'll keep a close eye. Yep, heading on over to the Senate, if you want to catch uh, that report from uh, Monday about it passing uh, the floor or your report about the uh, immunization, the latest immunization data, that's all available at the homepage of www.idahoednews.org. And and for sure, for House Bill 133, the opt-out bill, uh, to be passed into law, it would still need to uh, pass the Senate and, and get approval from Governor v- Brad Little or at least avoid a veto there. Um, but yeah, parents' rights is something that keeps coming up in a lot of debates that, that we hear about at the State House, right, Kevin? Right, and you were at the one on Tuesday on uh, the sex education bill. And to full disclosure, um, we're taping this uh, podcast on Friday morning. House education is due to take up the sex education bill later uh, Friday morning. So for the latest of what happens in committee, you'll just have you'll have to go to the website and go to the homepage, and we'll have uh, we'll have the news as it breaks. But really, a very emotional debate with with students involved in the debate to, to a large degree, uh, stakeholders, uh, you know, folks on both sides of the issue. Give us kind of the rundown of the debate over sex education. Yeah, let's kind of tee this up. Uh, I guess sort of start at the beginning, so to speak. But this is pushed by Representative Barbara Ehart, a Republican from Idaho Falls who sits on the House Education Committee. We're talking about House Bill 120, and it has to do with sex ed education. And again, we're going to use the term opt-out, and I don't don't want to confuse anybody. This is more like an opt-in, isn't it? This is an opt-in. And so what House Bill 120, if it's passed into law, what it would do was change basically the guidelines over sex education. Right now, parents are allowed to opt out if they don't want to have their children participate in sex ed courses. This bill would change it so that sex ed courses would only be available to students whose parents specifically opt them in. And so that's a kind of a 180 on, on how the policy would be handled rather than the current system where you are allowed to opt out and given alternative coursework materials. This would make it so that sex ed is only available uh, for families who opt in. And it was a very emotionally charged hearing on Tuesday in House Education. Uh, That was another one of those big hearings where uh, the room was way over full. There were probably 200 people in a room that's designed to hold less than 100. People were sitting on the floor and standing on the aisles until Capitol Security came through and cleared some space. But I guess the thing that struck me most is the number of young people specifically high school students who came from as far as Twin Falls uh, to testify on this bill. And I tracked testimony on Tuesday morning in House Ed. It was a very long hearing. 21 people spoke, and 18 of those 21 spoke against the bill that would require sex ed courses only for families who opted in. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the vast majority of people opposed this bill. They wanted to keep it the way it is. Uh, Three people spoke in favor of it. But, I mean, I guess I was struck by the students. And what yeah. they were saying mm-hmm. was that this bill would create another barrier between us and information uh, about our bodies and, and about our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And that's the way a lot of students couched it. And I was struck by the one student who testified and said that uh, making 
a student opt-in to sex education really puts a student in an untenable position if that student has been the victim of abuse. If they've been abused by a parent or a guardian, how do you then get opt-in consent from that parent or guardian to take a sex ed course? That was, Yeah, I quoted Lydia Christensen, 18-year-old from Twin Falls, and several other people actually made that point during the hearing. I just quoted the one student, but but several people made that point that what if there is a situation where a parent or a legal guardian has abused a child, has put their child in danger, and and you know, and they they don't sign this information, and so maybe the student doesn't have information about consent or about uh, sexual activity or about any number of topics that would come up in a sex education course. They they were very concerned that the power would be given to the parents who could basically suppress that kind of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and coursework, and she, she, you know, I thought she did a very good job making that point. She wasn't the only one who made that point. Um, and, and a number of kids t- talked to the fact that, you know, just sitting around the table at lunch or after school, talking to some of their friends, some of the basic misconceptions that even their friends had um, about sex education, about sexual activity, and they said, that's a problem, and I think we need to be expanding sex ed as opposed to uh, putting what could be an additional barrier. And then one, a couple other points I want to get to. Um, a couple of students keyed in on the fact about the logistics of bringing home a permission slip and having uh, a parent sign it. And people actually talked about uh, some of the Advanced Opportunities Program and the state funding that's available uh, for kids uh, to put towards AP courses or tests or Advanced Opportunities Programs or dual credits and how that basically is essentially free money, but it takes the parents to sign up for yeah. it. And even kids who would theoretically be interested in that or would be able to take those courses, they don't always follow through with the paperwork. And that's free money that they're saying they're leaving on the table. Can you imagine something as uncomfortable as bringing home a note saying, yeah, we're going to talk about sex ed in class, and I need you to reveal to review the course materials and, and sign a permission slip in advance. They were speculating that that could be too awkward for some kids and that you know, at the end of the day, those permission slips may just not quite find their way home to mom and dad, even if the parents would otherwise support them opting in. And so that was kind of the concerns about the bill. And in terms of the people who supported the bill, uh, they said that sex ed, and this is a topic that comes up often over the years in legislative sessions, but they said what is taught in sex ed does not align with Idaho's conservative values uh, were some of the concerns. And then this was brought back to this really is about parental rights. There's these concerns being expressed by the bill sponsor Barbara Ehart and many, many members of House Education that parents' rights um, are not fully established in Idaho and that they want to bring this forward to give parents even more autonomy over uh, their children's education. And so it does kind of come back to parental rights and conservative values. Uh, it's the, the topics that I'm hearing, the discussion points from people who support the bill. But, you know, overwhelmingly, the people who showed up and testified in committee um, earlier in this week overwhelmingly opposed this bill. And, and Ehart's issues here on, on sex education go beyond uh, sex education and the sex education classes that she says are being taught in the, in the Bonneville School District. And that's been a whole bone of contention yeah. between between her and the district, her concerns have run deeper. I mean, a few weeks ago, there was a discussion in committee about uh, the state's survey of uh, of risk behavior, which does not only cover 
uh, topics of sex. I mean, it covers a lot of topics on youth behavior, uh, whether we're talking about uh, drug and alcohol use, to texting while driving, to trying to get at a sense of uh, how many students are contemplating suicide. So it's a very far-reaching survey, and her concerns, and, and I don't think she was the only one in the committee to voice them, was why are we asking kids questions about sex? Yeah, yeah. Even that's though it's a, an anonymous survey and a voluntary one. That's exactly right, and, and I'm glad that you remembered that and brought that up. That was a little bit earlier in the session. We were talking about the Idaho Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which is anonymous and voluntary, uh, has been put forth every other year for years and years and years, and it gives people... And it's, a tool, right, and it's a tool that the State Department of Education has touted as a way of trying to get a gauge of what's happening in the high school. State officials have said the data is very useful when it comes to uh, talking about uh, what our kids are up to, what our kids are exposed to, the type of risky behaviors that they may be engaged with, whether they are assaulted or bullied or sexually abused, and then how those behaviors and risk factors change over time. And so state officials have said uh, this is extremely useful data, especially in the context of school safety and security. Uh, but yes, Representative Ehart had raised concerns, and, and she basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, but the basic message was, why are we asking our kids, our children, so many questions about sex? And so she has just had concerns overall about sex being brought up, about sex education being taught in schools, about asking our children about sexual content and sexual experience and sexual history. And, and she has said that, you know, when she grew up and what she prefers is a strict abstinence-only uh, sex education mm -hmm. program. And she's been very clear about that. She had a she had an interview with an uh, online radio personality uh, talking about this, and there were some misconceptions about what was and what was being taught in the Bonneville School District. Bonneville school officials have gone on record, first with the Post Register, then with Idaho Education News, saying that Representative Ehart uh, did not ask them what was going on. They did not understand what was being taught in the schools, and there was some misinformation spread, and they uh, the Bonneville school officials are saying reject the bill and that we have plenty of guidelines and policies in place at the local level where if parents have concerns about any material that's taught in sex ed, uh, that they are allowed to opt out. And so they say the state has already taken care of this. There's no reason for this bill. But uh, we were expecting the hearing to continue Friday morning. You're going to be covering it. Check the homepage at idahoednews.org for the latest. Uh, difficult to predict what will happen uh, but, yeah, that's just kind of the state we're at with the legislative session right there now. There's no good time to record a podcast because so much is going on uh, right now, today specifically, and then in the early days of next week and through the sprint to the finish. Um, yeah, if you wonder how we do all this stuff, sometimes we wonder how we do all this stuff. Yeah. This is one of those kind of days. Uh, but you'll be covering it. Folks can check the, the homepage uh, for the latest. Uh, you'll have an update on what happens with the sex ed bill as we get closer and closer to the... Uh, the final sprint uh, to the finish line of the Idaho legislative session, right? Right. So Tuesday morning, we, we had the hearing on the sex education bill, which had an overflow crowd in one House committee room. And, and I'm like right in, next door. <laughs> yeah, I was in an adjoining House committee room where we had the introductory hearing on a bill that would allow uh, enhanced concealed carry permit holder to bring a gun into school. Right now, that's that's not allowed. Uh, Representative Chad Christensen, a Republican from Ammon, is pushing this bill. So we had an introductory hearing, and those are print hearings, and we talk about that a lot. Yeah. But they're, they tend to be fairly brief. They tend to be fairly, uh, you know, non-controversial. It's a sort of a you know first discussion of a bill to get it printed, and then the bill uh, comes back for a full hearing. 
This was a pretty heated discussion, even in the committee, yeah. about what to do with this bill. Um, so, you know, the mechanics of this bill, like I say, uh, anybody who has an enhanced concealed weapons permit would be able to bring a gun into school. That would include staff, that would include teachers, principals. It would also include visitors to school. I mean, you, you would have uh, an absolute right to bring in a gun, no questions asked. And that was, that was the thrust of the uh, debate about this bill in committee. Um, Christensen uh, says that this is partly a Second Amendment issue for him. He doesn't believe that any local government, in this case a school board, should have any sort of ability to infringe upon uh, the right to carry. Uh, Representative John Gannon, a uh, Democrat from Boise, a uh, member of the House State Affairs Committee, was asking a lot of questions about how this would work and would this subvert local control over, yeah. uh, over guns in school. So to backtrack and remind people kind of where we are right now. Right, yeah. Schools can allow staff to carry weapons on campus. And several school districts and, have and made several, this decision. Several school districts and charter schools have already done this. Uh, it has to be a decision that's made then by the board or by the charter administration. But, you know, what you have is kind of a local control issue. So some of these districts and, and charters have gone down this road. They've decided that this is a way to protect a remote school in some cases uh, that may be far from first responders. Other districts have said, we have no interest in having our teachers armed, having staff armed. We've chosen not to do this. This bill, if it passes, turns all of that on its head. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the right to carry becomes sort of an absolute right to without carry. Restriction, without restriction. Which means, for all practical purposes, the building principal, the superintendent, the classroom teacher would not know and would really not be able to ask or otherwise request that someone not carry a gun. They wouldn't know who had a gun or who didn't at any point. Um, and so this has been opposed by a number of the education groups, right? Right. On I mean, these grounds, basically. Right. And that was what uh, you heard from Gannon, uh, Representative Gannon, during the print hearing on Tuesday. You know, he asked Christians, and would a principal be able to ask somebody in the school if they are carrying a weapon, even in the middle of an incident? And the answer is no. Uh, yeah. They would not be able to. And that was uh, Gannon's, one of Gannon's arguments against this bill was you, you have to allow principals to protect their schools. You have to give them the, the authority to do their jobs, in, a, in effect. Um, so he saw it as you know, a, an affront to local control, to local decision making. Just the print hearing. And like I say, because it was just the print hearing, no public testimony. Right. But you can tell, if this does come back for a full hearing, that uh, folks are going to be out in force on both sides of this issue, just by virtue of who showed up for the print hearing. You had uh, several folks from Every Town for Gun Safety, a, a group that supports gun control legislation. They were in, in the committee room uh, wearing their, their yeah. red Every Town t-shirts. You had members of the Three Percenters, a group that opposes uh, gun control. They were there in their shirts and hoodies. They stopped so, by before lunch that day. Yeah, they're, they're around. And maybe most tellingly was, you know, in this overflow crowd that we had, we had a bunch of students from Eagle High School who were just there to listen. And, you know, those are the, you know, those are the kids who are going to be in the middle of this thing if uh, this legislation were to become law. Uh, just happened to be their day to observe what was going on at the legislature. So, um, so they have... Uh, 
obviously a very active interest in what happens with this bill. The print hearing sets the stage for a full public hearing if and when that occurs. We'll be there. We'll be there. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Again, this is an Idaho legislature that absolutely hates it with a passion when the federal government or the president of the United States tells the state of Idaho what to do. And then this is a case where local school boards and principals are probably going to be saying, why is the state of Idaho telling our local school districts uh, what to do? So it's an interesting dynamic, and we see these dynamics in play every year, don't right. we? Right, and, and we're starting to see that debate unfold already. If you go to the homepage, you'll see a, a guest opinion that was submitted by the Boise School District. Yeah. And that's a district that has decided for many years uh, that they have no interest in allowing staff to carry weapons on campus. They, they would rather work with local law enforcement and come up with a plan that, that is more collaborative with law enforcement. Uh, in many cases, um, Boise schools have a school resource officer on campus, so they have a very different uh, security protocol. And the you know the thesis statement from the Boise district in their uh, their guest opinion is respect local school boards and, and their decision making authority on this issue and and don't mandate uh, a policy from the state down so we will see and, and what's interesting about all of this too is that in the absence of any real debate about funding a school security plan namely uh, superintendent Abara's plan this has become the school safety debate of this uh, 2019 Idaho legislative session yeah. So we'll, we'll watch it closely to see what happens. Well, stay tuned. Um, let's get to the big finish because that's where the legislature is going. Um, let's talk about timing first and how we're running out of it. What do you think? Right. I mean, the, you know, we were thinking about this may be the final three weeks of the legislative session coming up, that this may be the sprint to the finish. When you start to see budget bills being written and uh, arriving on the floors of the House and the Senate, and we've already had some appropriations bills that's uh, coming up. That's a pretty strong signal that the legislature is uh, heading towards conclusion because they can't leave town without spending money. They, they can't leave town without setting the state budget. Yeah, without setting the state budget. Yeah, so you have to run all these appropriations bills. So when you start to see those come, that's uh, a sign that uh, things are uh, heading towards the home stretch, which leads us back to the issue we've been watching all session: the funding formula bill that still isn't a bill. Yeah. Um, that's exactly right. We had some discussions on the school funding formula Wednesday in House Education, a very interesting discussion. Uh, Representative Lance Clow, the chairman of that committee, and Vice Chair Ryan Kirby kind of read, led members through about an hour and a half, hour or so discussion of the funding formula and some of the latest proposals and tweaks that are out there. And I don't think the hearing went quite the way uh, <laughs> that the, the chair and vice chair planned because Representative Gary Marshall, who's a first-year member uh, from Eastern Idaho, I want to say Idaho Falls. Idaho Falls, yes. Um, Representative Gary Marshall, he's a first-year member, but he's become very influential within the ranks of House Ed, and he asks a lot of questions. Retired teacher, retired Retired teacher, retired basically teacher prep administrator at Brigham Young University, Idaho. He's been a principal, a teacher, a lot of educational experience, um, really has a lot of respect and standing within the House Education Committee. And he kind of interrupted Lance Clow while they were going through this, and he said, the problem here is that we as a committee are so far out of the loop on these discussions. I don't see how we can even go forward at this point with this discussion. And then he evoked kind of the image of a a sporting contest and a stadium, and he said that if the negotiations going behind the scenes to develop the funding formula bill are a sporting event inside a stadium, 
he felt that he was not even in the back row of the stadium and did not see how he could get involved in the ball game in a meaningful way. That's a so, powerful yes, indictment yes. of the process. But then it got weird. <laughs> so he said it, and then he said said what? So he said in an open in meeting. In an open in, meeting. In a, in a committee uh, meeting. In a committee meeting with the public there and being streamed across the state. Then I was in the House private offices meeting with a different representative just moments after the meeting adjourned, and Representative Marshall found me, and he said that he made a mistake in House education and that he did not want me to capitalize and seize on his mistake to suggest that the committee was dysfunctional or anything about the committee at all or anything at all about the prospects for a school funding formula bill moving forward and passing. He said that I should not use his comments to try and sabotage the funding formula process, to which I kind of replied, I don't understand what you're saying. (laughs) What do you mean you made a mistake? You know, I feel as a journalist covering a public meeting with a high-ranking legislator over the biggest potential education issue of the year that involves all kinds of taxpayer dollars and a significant change to school funding, you expressed what appeared to be a very serious, heartfelt concern about the process And it is my duty as a reporter who covers the legislature to report on things that happen in the House Education Committee. And that I told him that this was significant and newsworthy. Um, And and so there we have it, right? So whether it was a mistake or a moment of uh, unguarded candor from Representative Marshall remains to be seen. But I I think it speaks to something bigger. I don't think that... uh, I, I think that at this stage of the session... There are probably other legislators who are harboring similar concerns or questions about what this funding formula bill would do and what this change would do and how it would how it would work. And, you know, I think there's probably a lot of unanswered questions within the legislature about the mechanics of this bill and maybe questions, too, about the process that got us to this point. Even though this guy is a first year member, he's a member of the Republican Party and he's plugged in on education issues. And he was the same legislator who carried uh, Governor Little's uh, $40,000 minimum teacher salary bill on the House floor this week. So while he is a first-term, first-year legislator... He's plugged in and he's, he's influential. You know, he's, he's not a backbencher at this point. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to point out. Monday is the transmittal deadline for legislation to basically pass from one chamber to the next. So that means if you have a Senate bill you got to get it out of the Senate, and you got to send it to the House on Monday. I asked Speaker Bidke on Thursday if that was an absolute deadline. He said it's pretty firm, but not absolute. So what that really means is they're really trying to speed things up and really tried to work towards adjournment. We saw morning and floor afternoon sessions um, this week. but So Monday's the transmittal deadline. I'm watching for three, four things. What's going to happen to the sex ed bill in relation Mm -hmm. to the transmittal deadline? What's going to happen to the guns on campus open carry bill uh, in relation to the deadline? And what is going to happen to the school funding formula? Will it even be introduced before the transmittal deadline? I don't know. Right. I mean, theoretically... And they will bend the rules for something major like the funding formula or having to do with Medicaid expansion. I feel like they will... Uh, kind of look the other way and let one slide through. But overall, they want to facilitate adjournment. They want right. to get everybody and, out of here before and, April 1st, and, they're, and, they're and even the before me- that. And they're sending the message to rank-and-file legislators that, you know, 
we're trying to get this train uh, to the final terminal here. That you know, we're not going to be here for another month or another month and a half. So if you've got a bill that you really care about, you better get it moving along. We've also got uh, Superintendent Ybarra's teacher pipeline bill that could be affected by the transmittal deadline. There's a Democrat's rural loan forgiveness bill that could be affected by the transmittal deadline. Uh, there's a couple Senate bills that you've been watching. Some of those have passed and have headed to the House. But uh, if you strictly adhere to this deadline, there are going to be a lot of bills that uh, don't make it through the legislative process because, uh, you know, logistically, you know, you're going to run out of time on Monday if Monday is a hard deadline or a deadline that's hard that you have to get some sort of dispensation from leadership that your bill is important enough that it's going to go through even past the deadline. So signal pretty strongly coming from leadership that uh, they want to get this session wrapped up in the next three weeks. So uh, that creates a lot of questions about what gets through and what doesn't get through. Yeah, and I think based on the budget, where things are with the budget right now, we're on track to be able to wrap it up in three weeks or less, um, at least when it comes to finishing business. And then there's the adjournment procedures, which were new last year, I want to say, and they'll go yes. through that again this year. But I, I think three weeks, uh, maybe slightly less away from wrapping up all business. We're in a position to do that with the budgets so long as budget bills don't get killed or vetoed. I think that they're in good shape to do that. Uh, some of the big education bills were late breaking this year. Mm -hmm. uh, the overall volume was down. We've talked about that. But uh, this is the sprint to the finish. This is kind of the crazy point of the session. I feel like that started this week and that will continue. Um, so we'll see, but stick with us. We'll be back next week, no matter what, for another edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. And keep checking the website because keep things checking the website very quickly um, this time in the session. Things we'll change. We'll keep you as posted as we can, as quickly as we can. Certainly by the day, often by the hour. Um, and so the website, and go ahead, give us a follow on Twitter, at Idaho Ed News. That's another good resource. But thanks so much for stopping by. We always have a lot of fun on the education, on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this intersection of education policy education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.